hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, June 9th, we're studying Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 15. Paul and Silas continue on their way from Philippi to proclaim the gospel in Thessalonica and Berea. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flammy. Pastor Flammy serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, welcome back to Sharper Iron. I'm happy to be back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Flammy, give us some context. Remind us where we are in the world, where we are in the book of Acts as we prepare to look at the first part of Acts 17 today. Yeah, a kind of a momentous thing had just happened in the previous chapter, and that is the gospel has gone out from Asia and entered into Europe, which is a big deal. Uh, uh, these are wor- two different worlds, you might think of them uh, in that way. Uh, two different peoples, two different kinds of culture. And uh, so the jumping of, of, of the gospel from Asia over into Europe, from the east into the west, is a momentous moment. Uh, and, and so we are in St. Paul's second missionary journey, uh, which is encompassed by Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through chapter 18, verse 32. Uh, the first, uh, he spends uh, uh, some time in Philippi until persecution causes St. Paul uh, to leave and uh, to pass through a couple of cities before finally taking us to Thessalonica. Uh, Macedo- Macedonia is very, very interesting. Um, I just finished a book about Philip and Alexander the Great. Uh, really fantastic. It was by Adrian Goldsworthy. I think that's his name. He's a kind of a popular historian. He writes about the ancient world. And this book about father and son helps to explain basically why uh, Judea uh, knows Greek, can converse in Greek, and why the Gospels were written in Greek. It's because of the conquests of of Alexander the Great. And he he is from Macedonia. And he uh, was... Maybe seen to the north of Achaia, seen as a barbarian by previous generations, but to prove his great uh, Greekness, I suppose you might put it like that. I'm sorry to all you classical people out there. Just forgive me. But to (laughs) prove his great Greekness uh, and his great love of all things Greek and their culture, uh, he took that culture, uh, that language, the history, uh, the mythology, and uh, uh, the, the religion and the philosophy and he took it to Asia Minor. Uh, he took it south into Syria, into Judea, into Egypt. And then he pushed into Persia and even passed uh, the boundaries of the Persian Empire deep into India. It's really an amazing story. And, and here we could see uh, the gospel sort of uh, having gained the language of, of Greek, which is the international language that spans east and west at this time. It now comes back to its homeland, right? So the place where Greek, uh, the language and the culture had started off and spread to the uh, and spread east into Asia, and now here comes the gospel being preached and taught in this language, 
to for the salvation of these people's souls. You know, Alexander the Great brought these people empire, power, dominion, wealth, and honor. But when Saint Paul uh, uh, crosses, uh, uh, you know, crosses over into into Europe, uh, he brings salvation. He brings Christ. And, and the gifts of God's grace that cannot be found through military conquest or even high philosophy. It's brought by the Holy Spirit. And it was indeed the Holy Spirit, right, uh, who, kept, uh, uh, who kept Paul from going to places or sitting around in places like Asia or going north into Bith, uh, Bithynia. And instead said, through a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come here, uh, he directed Paul to the Macedonians. Uh, to receive this great gift of salvation. I appreciate you bringing out that that history book. I didn't know you read anything that wasn't written by old Lutherans. So I'm, <laughs> I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do I do appreciate you you bringing out that history because I mean and you can tell me if I'm I'm saying too much but I don't think I am that what what the like the Lord actually was at work through what happened in Alexander the Great and his father Philip before him, such that what happened in the the Hellenization I think that's the way it's usually referred to, the Hellenization that happened, it really like the Lord's purpose behind that is to accomplish what we're seeing at this very moment that the the Greek language that became so broadly spread, the the whole point of that was so that the gospel might eventually be preached to Greeks, right? Yes, I mean Greek is an international language uh, by this point in the first century AD. And it is a language of respected, educated people all over the world from India. Uh, it's amazing. Like they have these uh, places that you can go to in Afghanistan and in India where you could see the remnants of Greek culture that had lasted there for centuries after Alexander's conquest. And of course, all the way far into the West in Rome. I mean, you could have gone to Spain during the century and there would have been competitions in Greek poetry, you know, who who can uh, recite the best and, and, and uh, who can remember the most. Uh, that's the importance of Greek at this time. Uh, we think of Latin, and again, forgive me, you classicists, I, I don't mean any offense, but you think of Latin as being like the ancient language. The, uh, but I think when it comes to just the usage, how widespread it was, uh, uh, and also how it was seen as the the educated or the language of the educated. It is Greek that takes that prominent place. And it did for so many centuries uh, in, in the church. It is, and even after Latin took over in the Western church, Greek continued to be the prime uh, Christian language in the East. So yes, Greek is the international language. And God indeed used this process of Hellenization to bless his people with a language that could be understood by, by different nations. I mean, how wonderful is that? It's kind of like the, the gift of uh, an, an American or a British missionary uh, going to any part of the planet at this moment. And because you speak English, uh, there is like a better than even chance that any random person you, you speak to will be able to get the gist of what you're saying. I mean, that's an amazing gift. That that is a that that is something to be praised. Uh, that that uh, here is a, a this bridge, you know, uh, from one people group to another, in having a kind of common language that undoes the divisions that first uh, the Lord uh, uh, used at Babel to push the nations apart, and now see how the Lord is bringing the nations back together through this common through this common language. First in Greek, and and I think probably you can make an argument today uh, through the English language as well. 
Mm. And all for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel in that language, yes. so that they may hear and be saved. So the gospel continues further into Greece in Acts chapter 17. We begin in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. That's our text for today. That's Acts 17, verses 1 to 15. So, Pastor Flamey, we saw this yesterday in Philippi, that there was persecution when the preaching of the gospel happened. And again, it happens in Thessalonica, although perhaps we we should start with Paul's his custom here in in going to a synagogue. It seems that in Philippi, the the Jewish presence was a, a little bit less. He he has a little bit of trouble finding a place of prayer. He goes to the riverside at yeah, first to, to right. locate Lydia, but but here in Thessalonica, he he finds a. I mean, this is kind of his normal pattern in Thessalonica. Yeah, that's right. And you can find an extended uh, sermon such as would have been preached in the synagogue in Acts chapter thirteen. Uh, here you have the same sort of sermon sort of distilled down to this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, right? Uh, so, yeah, and, and it also kind of helps us to understand that why after leaving Philippi, uh, he passes through two cities until he finally comes to Thessalonica. Uh, one commentator suggested, well, simply for the fact that those two cities, uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, lacked synagogues. And so St. Paul was, in fact, looking for uh, a synagogue so that he could find people who have the word of God and, uh, and, and he would be able to, to, to get this sort of immediate traction with them, these people who are waiting for uh, the Messiah, the appearance of the Messiah and the redemption of Israel, you know. And so, yeah, it's kind of an interesting uh, term here, his custom, uh, that he would go to the place where where the Jews were found, where they were gathered around, especially in a synagogue, 
the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, and prayer. Uh, and this, by the way, when, when I talk to my Bible study folks, you could tell me if I'm out of bounds when it comes to this kind of thing. But you have these in the major and minor prophets, these promises of, of the uh, the ingathering of the scattered uh, 10 tribes of Israel after mm-hmm. the kingdom has been destroyed uh, by by Assyria. Well, those people, yes, they, they were sort of swallowed up by Assyria, but it is interesting in Acts you have all of these gatherings of Jews in most of the towns that they go visit. Mm, yeah. That's no small thing. I know that the diaspora is in in some part is also in some part because of uh, you know the, the the in the Babylonian and Persian Empire, uh, the Judeans themselves, you know the uh, the Benjaminites and and uh, the descendants of the tribe of Judah. They also settled all over the known world. That's true. But I think we should also hold out the possibility that uh, folks who belong to the other tribes um, carried with them the word of God. Uh, not everybody, but enough of them did. And wherever they settled, they would gather around that word and hear it and believe it and wait for the redemption of Israel. You know, So this is the ingathering of the tribes of Israel. And it's going to be an ingathering of faith. Uh, and, and so that it's not only going to be for Jews only, but also, God be praised, as we see in this text, for the Gentiles. And so, of course, it makes sense that when you go to preach Christ and him crucified, you go to the people who are already waiting for Christ, who are waiting for the Messiah to come and to redeem God's people, to gather them into one holy kingdom of priests. Uh, and and uh, again, I, I mean, I'm not a missiologist um, I've been on, I suppose, a handful of trips out of the country to go talk to other Christians. Uh, but I imagine uh, that this has to be part of the strategy. You know, If I'm going into a place to preach, especially the saving truths of the gospel, then I'm going to find people whose ears are already tuned in uh, to hear truths like that. You know, their, their hearts are already somewhat prepared. You know, And so am I going to go to a uh, so am I going to go to like a, a place, a religious gathering where they have something of the Holy Scriptures already, but maybe they don't have a full understanding of it? That might be a good idea. You know, it might be a good idea to to ask around to say, where are the religious people gathered? And to do what St. Paul does later on in Athens. <laughs> he, yeah. he goes to the he goes to the Areopagus that says, I see you are debating these high and heavenly things. Let me now tell you something that you could not never know. Otherwise, right? And he reveals Christ to them, uh, and, and 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 so again, I, I mean, why first to the synagogues? I think it is uh, in large parts because of the promises that God had made in the Old Testament about how He would gather His particular people from every every nation, from all the places where they had been scattered, and that's what Saint Paul does first. He goes first to the people who have the word, who have been waiting for the consummation and the fulfillment of that word. And he gives them the great gift of saying, your Messiah has come. Mm. Yeah. And he identifies him very plainly as Jesus. You get that. You don't get the full sermon here in Acts chapter 17. As you said, if you want to hear a full sermon from Paul in a synagogue, go back to Acts chapter 13, but you you get the summary here. And it it is this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And he's, I mean, he's reasoning from the scriptures. This, this makes perfect sense that he goes to the place where the scriptures are going to be read such that he can preach on them and preach the, the fullness of what's there. And I, I just, I love the, the same, the same way that Jesus spoke 
in Luke chapter 24, when he opened the minds of the apostles there, St. Paul has had his mind opened in the same way by the Lord Jesus to understand that it is all about Christ. And so he goes to the place where Christ is being proclaimed, but they don't know it yet. Yeah, and so he, he, he reveals it to them in the preaching. This is an amazing thing. I mean, you, in, in some ways, we have this naive, maybe American Pentecostalish understanding of how the apostles must have operated, which is they had a direct line of communication uh, with God via the Holy Spirit. They showed up at a place and would just start speaking heavenly truths, right? That no one had ever heard before in the history of the world. But that's not how it worked. From the very beginning to now, uh, from the very beginning of Acts until this point, what do we see consistently? That the apostles preach upon the texts of Holy Scripture. Just in the same way as your pastor has a Bible text that he preaches from to give you the goods of forgiveness and the hope of eternal life, it turns out <laughs> that Peter uh, and Paul would do the same exact thing. And, 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 uh, and, and what's really cool, and I like this, if you go to 1 Thessalonians and look at the epistle, the letter that Paul writes and sends back to the church there, he makes a big deal about how they received from St. Paul uh, not the opinions of men, uh, not some religious nut, but somebody who was giving to them the word of God, which confirmed their faith and hope, you know? Uh, it, it's so it, it's kind of nice when you look back at these stories of these uh, of these folks who are members of synagogues and became Christian. Uh, it's not as if they were uh, uh, separated from God at his grace beforehand, you know. Uh, their faithful expectation of the Christ was their saving faith, you know. Uh, uh, and, and instead of, of receiving something that was different and distinct, they receive the fulfillment of their hope. They receive, you know, it's kind of like they're, they have the glass and they're waiting for it to be filled. And St. Paul comes and fills it up and says, now drink deeply. Your day has come. You know, and so instead of getting something new, strange, or different, they're receiving only what God had promised, and and uh, and they're still continuing to bind themselves uh, to God's word. And this will come up uh, uh, with even greater importance later when we go down to Berea, and and learn a little bit more about why they might be more noble <laughs> than the Thessalonians, which is an interesting turn of phrase that Saint Saint Luke uses. Uh, but but uh, but we'll see. Uh, what is the relationship between what St. Paul says and the Old Testament? Hmm. Now, before we before we get there, because we will get to Berea, sure. in, in Thessalonica, before we even get to the persecution that arises there, which is what I tend to think of when I think of Thessalonica, that's where Paul gets run out of town and then they chase him to the next town as well. <laughs> uh, but before before that happens, many do believe, and, and Luke particularly makes mention that not a few of the leading women mm. were among this group. And again, in, in Berea, something similar happens where there are women of high standing. He, he particularly singles them out. Why, why is it that we see this in, I mean, in Lydia, you go back to the previous text, Lydia is the, the first convert mentioned in Europe. Uh, what is it about the, the women that keep getting mentioned as those who are believing what Paul's preaching? Um, so the honor of, 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 uh, so honor in God's kingdom is is not given out as honor would be in a worldly kingdom, you know, uh, and and here honor is bound to hearing and believing, and according to the great wisdom of the Holy Spirit, and through you know His work through that preached word, 
These women are especially mentioned because they heard the word of God and did not resist it. They did not reject it, but they received it with joy and for salvation. And for that reason, even though they are maybe least in the kingdoms of the world, they become first in the kingdom of heaven. And this also helps us to understand when it comes to the Holy Scriptures uh, that, that you know, we're, we're not getting a misogynistic way of doing life. <laughs> you know, God is not a woman hater. He is a he is the creator of women and he loves women and he redeems them and gives them this this great and first honor of salvation here in Europe. It's it's an amazing thing. Uh, of course, this does nothing to subvert headship in the home or even in in uh, society. But it does show that when it comes to God's grace and his mercy, it comes to the, the least and, and oftentimes the least, uh, uh, the, those who have less standing, those who have less means and money and power, uh, they are, their hearts are already prepared to receive great riches from God, heavenly riches. And these women do. And uh, this is a great example, you know, for, for your wives and, and mothers and, and sisters and and the ladies of the congregation, wherever you may go to church, you know, if they ever get upset or, or are sometimes confused as to why, why are pastors always men? <laughs> why, why does St. Paul say that, uh, that he uh, desires women to be quiet and submissive in church? Well, it's because the greatest thing, the greatest honor that you could have in church is to, in all quietness and submissiveness, to hear the gospel and to believe it. You know, to, to receive the great gift of God's righteousness by faith alone. And it maybe, this just maybe, I'll, I'll submit this to you, see, see what you think about it. It could be that the men who are used to being very strong and organized and, and, uh, and leaders, uh, that because of their great pride and their, and their strength and their leadership, and uh, that they actually have hearts that are set against uh, because of their pride, what God wants to give them. So God comes in the law and says, you have no power, agency, holiness of your own. It must be given to you as a gift. And I think, and I think that men are kind of predisposed to, towards saying, well, that sounds really weak, that I have to receive something instead of being able to achieve it, to fight for it, and to, and to get it by you know, my, my strength or my prowess. I think that women do don't really have that same testosterone infused baggage, <laughs> and for that reason, and also according to the orders of creation, uh, they're set up within the home and the family to receive gifts from their husbands, right? And so it's good and fitting for them when they hear the gospel to say, "Yes, this makes absolute sense. That just as I have been made by my God to receive gifts." So the greatest gift now comes to me from my God in this, my Savior, Jesus, who forgives me my sins, who gives me the hope of eternal life, right? Uh, because they don't have, again, this, this sort of uh, predisposition towards pride. Maybe, maybe that, that's one of the reasons why, at least in this Western European society, this Greek culture that Paul is entering into, uh, that they uh, receive this very special mention before the men as the ones who, who hear the gospel and believe it, who are the first Christians. They have this great honor and respect that's given to them uh, by St. Luke. 
I know it's it's a, an account of two women, but I, as you were talking, I was reminded of what happens with Mary and Martha in Luke chapter ten, and the the way that Jesus speaks to to Martha about her sister Mary that she has chosen the good portion, and that won't be taken away from her. Yeah, the, the great joy that belongs to Mary in receiving. I mean, well, just that, just that, that it is a great joy to be able to sit and to receive. Sometimes we do lose sight of that. It is, yeah, exactly. That's fundamentally what it means to be a Christian, that we receive gifts from God, that we receive grace and mercy without any merit or worthiness on our part. Uh, and that, re- and that it pertains to things in this world, like your daily bread, and also to the gifts of redemption, like the blood of Christ, uh, extended to you through holy baptism, through the word, and, and through the supper. You, know? uh, it, 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 you see this in, in congregations especially here in the United States, because I think just maybe uh, being descendants of, of, uh, of uh, or at least uh, having come out of the context of Western culture and civilization, uh, men in our country have to have power agency and they take pride in that, right? In, in choosing for themselves, in working it out for themselves and grabbing a hold of it because they see that it's good and they've done what it takes to have it. You know, everything becomes a prize. And, and and because of that, you see in our congregations, there are many women who come to hear the gospel and are blessed by the gifts of grace. But there are there's a noticeable absence sometimes of, of fathers or husbands. Um, and, and that is something that I, I've seen in the churches where I've grown up. That's something that I've seen in both the churches where I've served as, as a pastor. Uh, that you'll sometimes have a mom who faithfully and diligently brings her kids to church. That is a holy, precious work. You know, she's assumed because her husband's abdicated it, spiritual headship of the family, you know? And, and why is the man not there? Why is the husband not there? Well, you know, he's not into that religious stuff. (laughs) And I don't think that this is a problem of our churches being too feminized. You know, maybe that was a a, a genuine complaint in generate in in the previous generation or 20 years ago, Mm. but we see, we sing some pretty, I don't know, manly things. It's not like we try to go out of the way to make everything frilly. And, but it's not like we're trying to cater to men or women specifically. What we have is the gospel. Jesus is the one who's fashioned the gospel for people's hearts, whether men or women. You know, And it just turns out that so many more women are eager to receive that, those gifts of grace from God, than, than prideful men. You know, And because of that, they should have special mention, not only in, in the book of Acts, but also in our own congregations. Uh, we should say, this is good. They've chosen the better thing, just as Mary did, and sitting at the feet of Jesus. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Hmm. Now, we will get to talk about one of the men of the city who does believe. We find out about Jason, but yes. we're going to talk about him on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Acts 17 with Pastor Brian Flamy. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, June 9th. We're studying Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 15 with Pastor Brian Flaming. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flaming, prior to the break, we were talking about the faithful women who received the gospel both in Thessalonica and in Berea, but mention is also made of faithful Jason in Thessalonica, who it appears that he's that's where Paul and Silas end up staying, and Jason actually ends up paying the price for it. Talk a little bit about Jason. Yeah, what I love about Jason is that he comes up only in reference to this persecution, but we quickly discover why he's being persecuted. It's because he has shown great hospitality and kindness in opening up his home to Paul and Silas, these these men who have come to preach the living and saving word to the people there. And uh, and and this is a great example, I think, of of Christian hospitality. In Jason, it, it also, this should bring to our mind, especially two different passages uh, from the Gospels. Both of them are in Matthew's Gospel. The first would be from Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus says, uh, uh, you know, whoever, uh, let, let's see if maybe I still have it open here. I, I do. Yes. Whoever receives you, he's speaking to the apostles, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will, re- will receive a prophet's reward. And, and uh, that, that, what a great and beautiful promise to prompt Christian generosity, especially to those who bring us the gifts of grace, uh, uh, to pastors, to, uh, uh, to missionaries overseas. Uh, these people, they, they come bearing the gospel uh, for the salvation of souls and, and people open up their homes to them. And take care of them so that they can do their good and holy work. Now, Jesus said, whoever receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Look at the reward that Jason gets. <laughs> He's the prophet's reward. <laughs> That's right. Here's the prophet's reward. It turns out that you'll be dragged out of your house when they can't find either Paul or Silas inside to try to satisfy the crowd. And then, be, and then they drag Jason and some of the other Christians before the rulers of the city. You know, this is the reward that he gets for housing an apostle. Now, the world would look at this and say, well, that means that I will never open up my home to a pastor. (laughs) Or (laughs) that I won't actually give a tithe to the church if it means that someday my tithe might come back to bite me. And the government, I mean, you can imagine something similar happening in this day and age. Uh, where the government is displeased with Christians who advocate for you know the lives of the unborn children, and because of our you know language against abortion, it's now seen as maybe hate speech, and and the government wants to silence the preaching of the churches uh, uh, because they see it as harmful towards you know what women's health or something crazy like that, and and because of that, you could see how in supporting your pastor and supporting the ministry of the word. I mean, it could be that your church, I'm just saying, it's a possibility that your church keeps records of who gives what, 
<laughs> and it could be that someday a, a, some somebody from the government shows up with a warrant to get those records to figure out who in the community is supporting the preaching ministry of the gospel. You know, and then you too will be with uh, be with Jason <laughs> and sharing a prophet's reward. But again, uh, the way that the world sees things and the way that we see things as Christians is they're not the same. Uh, Jesus says it's blessed. When you suffer and are persecuted for his name's sake, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, so even though we might say, poor Jason, who was I reading? Some commentator. I think it was Lenski. And he actually says, poor Jason. <laughs> like he's feeling, <laughs> he's feeling sorry for Jason. I don't think Jesus feels sorry for Jason. I think that Jesus thinks that Jason is being strengthened in his faith, that he is, is gaining these wonderful fruits uh, of of doing a faithful work in which is ha- being tested now by the world and by the the hatred of Satan, you know this is actually going to be good for the church in Thessalonica to bear up under this persecution and endure it by faith alone. Mm. And so, so this is also you know what happens to Jason here and the rewards for his Christian generosity. Yes, they may look terrible in the world, but remember that Jesus attaches to such persecution for the sake of Christian generosity. Uh, uh, the promises of of blessedness, uh, of salvation, and rewards in heaven. Th- those are not small things. Those are not things to be despised. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Saint Paul feels sorry for Jason either. He writes he writes to Timothy, who is who's there with Paul and Silas, by the way. Tim- right. in, in the second epistle to Timothy, chapter one, verse eight, Paul says this: Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I mean, I, he could have said the same thing to Jason, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Don't be ashamed. This is a time for gladness. Back in Acts chapter 5, you remember that one of the first episodes of persecution was met with not despair and sorrow, uh, but with joy at the, at, 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 that these Christians were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name, you know? And so also, I think back to how I'm studying Hebrews right now with a a group of ladies in the congregation, uh, the first members of the congregation, we might call them. <laughs> They're studying like one of the very best books. Uh, and, and, and anyways, one of the things that uh, the authors of the Hebrews mentions is that here at the very beginning, when you were first converted, you were persecuted outright and you shared in the sufferings of Christ. Since then, you've, there's kind of this uneasy truce maybe between the Jews and the Christians in Judea and around Jerusalem. And the authors of the Hebrews says, this is not good. Uh, uh, you know, you are becoming distracted. You're getting anxious and worried and afraid. Uh, and he says that you you have not yet suffered to the point of, of, you know, your blood being shed. And you get the impression that, in fact, if your blood is shed, if you actually have to pay a price for your Christianity, then it does amazing things for your conviction and for your faith, you know? Now, nobody, nobody ought to, like, run headlong into persecution and make it happen. Persecution always comes by the will of God, right? He is the one who hands it when and where he wills it. That being said, if you listen to many of the martyrs' accounts from the early church, they desire earnestly to suffer for Jesus' name's sake. And it's like you you hear these stories of these soldiers or these officers in the Roman legions when finally somebody gets ticked off because, you know, an officer has been promoted to centurion and a pagan has been passed over and the pagan goes uh you know to the the general and says hey you can't 
You can't pass over me. That guy's a Christian. And then they go to the, the, the man who's being promoted to a centurion. They say, is this true? Are you a Christian? And he says, yes, finally. You finally made me give an account of Christ. Thanks be to God. I'm ready. To please take off my head. I'm Go ahead and follow through. And, and, you know, these guys say, well, wait a second. Let us give you a chance to recant. And uh, the centurion says, no, I, I'm sure of it. <laughs> you know? And so this, this, is, so this attitude with an eye upon martyrdom, this attitude that has an eye upon persecution, which could always be around the corner for any of us. I think that's, that's something that we should all kind of strive towards, not having anxiety and being worried about what tomorrow might bring. Uh, uh, if somebody will show up at our door and maybe take us away and put us into prison for loving Jesus. But instead, we should kind of resolve in our hearts right now that when that day comes, it will be for my good. And I will, like the apostles and the disciples and the other Christians before me, uh, uh, be persecuted with joy and thanksgiving. I mean, pr- work on the prayers that you will say on that day ahead of time so you'll know what to say, you know? Now, the mob that drags Jason out has quite the accusation. And I wonder if this is one of those times where the Holy Spirit puts into the mouth of an unbeliever something that ends up being true. Yeah. So the, the accusation is these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. In, in, in what sense is that true of the Christian gospel? Yeah, Jesus has come to turn the world upside down. That's absolutely true. The, what's really wild is that the Jews who get incited towards violence and anger— uh, you get the sense that they had been paying very close attention over the past three weeks, three Sabbaths, to St. Paul's preaching, and they were taking probably notes about how Jesus was treated by the Sanhedrin. And they thought to themselves, well, if this ended up with Jesus being crucified, maybe we could do the same thing to St. Paul. And so they do. <laughs> they were like, okay, so let's send out a band of people to arrest them, and then we'll drag them before authorities, and then we'll accuse them of supplanting Caesar, because that worked out so great. And it's, uh, it's almost as if they missed the whole point, that in trying to persecute and kill Jesus, the Sanhedrin actually fulfilled the scriptures, and Christ attained the great redemption of mankind. You know, this is his kingdom, a kingdom of cross, suffering, and of the word. You know, and so, yes, Jesus does come uh, to turn everything upside down. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the, what do we call it? The Heidelberg Disputation. I mean, I suppose I am. Every Lutheran has to say you're a big fan of the Heidelberg Disputation. That's fine. Whatever. <laughs> but this, is, this would be actually an appropriate place to talk about how people are by nature, right? According to the flesh, uh, uh, in the corruption of, of, of what sin has done to us, uh, theologians of glory. You know, we see an order of things in the world that's governed by the law. And Jesus comes in his spiritual kingdom of grace to turn everything on its head. No longer are good things obtained through obedience and works, but instead by the passive receiving of faith. You know, that here Jesus is is a, a king and a lord of all the earth, not be through military conquest like Alexander the Great had to go through to, a, to, to gain his great empire. But instead, Jesus is defeated. He suffers, he bleeds, he dies and gains his kingdom, you know? And so, and so just like, uh, oh man, do you remember this? The uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, right before Jesus is crucified, prophesied without even realizing it. So also these Jews who have dragged Jason uh, before the rulers of the city uh, they are also prophesying, 
even though they're trying to be as slanderous and as lying as possible, they're prophesying truly concerning Jesus that he has indeed come uh, to turn everything upside down with his kingdom of grace. However, they get this wrong, and we have to pay attention to this. Jesus does not desire a political kingdom. He doesn't want to cast Caesar off his throne. And that's in, in essence what they're saying to the rulers of the city, that the the economy, the, how, the household of this world is being supplanted by Jesus. He wants to tear Caesar down from his seat of authority. That's not true. That's not true in the least. Instead, as we've re- heard from Jesus himself, uh, when he says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, right? Uh, he also says, I, uh, uh, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar, give unto God that which is God's. And in Romans 13, you know, that you see that God has instituted worldly power and authority, even the sword, uh, to, to maintain order in this world. So these two things can't exist at the same time. That is, order in the world according to the law, and of course, grace in the world according to the gospel. And in fact, uh, uh, what we desire is for both things to be held at the same time, that we have an orderly, quiet, peaceable life, that Caesar does what God has given him to do so that the gospel can be preached and that people can have opportunity to hear it. Because otherwise, in chaos and in violence and just uh, uh, in, and in a, a re- rebellion and upheaval, uh, people forget they do not the gospel. They forget God's promises. Uh, they do not have opportunity and the peaceful opportunity to gather around God's word and sacrament. So those two things must and can go together. Hmm. Now, this accusation from the violent mob does the work that they want. Yes. At least they're able to run Paul and Silas out of town. It, right. It's striking to to watch how the church really takes care of Paul and Silas here. And, and Paul and Silas don't, as you said, you know, they don't rush into persecution. They're they're perfectly happy to be sent to the next town to proclaim the the gospel there in Berea. Mm-hmm. They they I'm assuming you know they encourage the brothers there in Thessalonica. As you said, they're going to be letters written. There will be letters written back to Thessalonica pretty soon. I think in, in Paul's ministry, if, if my memory is correct, many would suggest that the letters to Thessalonians are among the very first that Paul writes. And I would agree, if, absolutely. I mean, the context suggests that that Saint Paul is down there in Achaia, right in Greece proper. You might say if you're looking at a map, and he's sending back these letters. And saying, hey, uh, Timothy, who's up there, who got left with you, he came and gave a good report. And so, yeah, absolutely. These were letters that were written probably in the early 50s. St. Paul is still close by. And uh, it, and if these are some earliest examples of St. Paul's writings, God be praised. It shows you how evangelical they are and how consistent they are with everything else that uh, has been written about St. Paul by St. Luke and by St. Paul and other epistles. So this persecution in Thessalonica does send them along to a town called Berea. And as you mentioned previously, the way St. Luke writes is that the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And and the way he expounds upon that is that they received the word with all eagerness and they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. Talk about these noble Bereans. Yeah, the noble Bereans. So actually, you know how the exegetes are. They, they like to say, by nobility here, what do they mean? You know, uh, does the author or the redactor, whoever means nobility by birth? No, obviously not. What more noble means here is exactly what you said, according to the explanation that St. Luke provides. When St. Paul came, uh, he found true, true Israelites. That is, not people... Uh, who, uh, who went to synagogue every week because they had to, or who observed Passover or other sorts of 
rites and and regulations and, uh, and, and sort of ceremonial observances of the Jews because it's tradition, like your favorite you know movie and songs say, you know it's tradition. Uh, what is that movie called? Fiddler on the Roof. That's right. Fiddler on the Roof. Yep. Yeah. So if Jeff Pulse is listening, that that one's for you. And <laughs> um, uh, so it, these are not Jews according to tradition. Uh, uh, these are Israelites by the word and faith. And so you get the sense that as St. Paul comes, it, according to custom, goes to the synagogue, he sees people who are gathered around the Torah, the instruction of God at his word uh, that from Moses and the prophets, and they have been eagerly awaiting the fulfillment of God's promises. And so when St. Paul says, the Messiah has come, they say to him, tell us what he has done so we can compare what you say, St. Paul, against what you know Moses says. Against what Isaiah says, or Jeremiah, or the rest of the prophets, or David and the Psalms. And so they test everything that St. Paul says according to the revelation of the word which they already possess. And it came to a happy result. Uh, they So instead of saying that St. Paul is disrupting our Jewishness, or whatever that might be, our traditions... They see that, no, St. Paul is a messenger of glad tidings, of good news. He comes to say that the faith that we've always possessed is now been fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is the Christ. And so this is what true spiritual nobility means. It means that we test everything against the word of God. Now, this testing must be done uh, always according to the clarity of the Holy Scriptures and never according to your own individual opinion. I, I can't emphasize this enough. Uh, it, it's not, the, the Holy Scriptures is not for you to, to determine uh, you know, what it means for everybody else uh, according to your private opinions. But instead, you must understand that God speaks clearly and convincingly through the Scriptures, and he speaks not just to you and, and he only reveals the truths to you alone, but he reveals it to the whole church, right? Uh, and so there is a communion of the saints. There's, I'm sorry, there is a communion of the saints. Uh, uh, that, and that communion is a communion of, of being gathered around uh, and, and, uh, the word and hearing it. You know? it, it and God be praised for that. That the Bereans, instead of uh, uh, be, be having Jews there who, who were uh, antagonistic, uh, uh, who fought off Paul and Silas. Instead, you get every impression from St. Luke here that they were content to have Paul and Silas for as long as they could be there. And instead, the troublemakers that, that arose in Thessalonica uh, came to find Paul and Silas in the next town over, you know. That's quite remarkable that that Paul has that kind of a fan club. We've we've seen that before, though. I mean, it it happened in Asia Minor. I believe it was from Pisidian Antioch that they followed him. Uh, they they followed him a couple other times previously and and chased him around out of town. The same thing happens here with the the Thessalonians who who want to to kick Paul entirely out of of the region. In terms of the of the Bereans and the way that they hear the scriptures and and test that against the against what the scriptures say, how, how does that remain a duty of Christian hearers still today? I mean, we talked about being a Christian hearer and the joy of just receiving. How does this testing against the scriptures go together with that? Yeah. So look, um, every Christian, I believe, has this duty together with the congregation to which they belong. Um, you are not to follow, follow a man blindly. I don't care how big he is, how muscular, how, can, how good looking he is. I really don't care. You know, it doesn't matter if he shows up at the congregation and says, 
My first act as pastor is to give you each a hundred bucks tomorrow. It doesn't matter. What matters is what he preaches concerning Christ. And just as the Bereans proved their, their godly nobility in testing what St. Paul said against the revealed word of God, so also I believe that every Christian, every congregation has the duty to test everything that their pastor preaches and teaches to be sure that they, this pastor is not giving anything uh, new that is different or distinct, but the same godly saving truth, which has already come to us in the church through the apostles, the apostolic word, the Holy Scriptures. And and God be praised for that. I give, instead of this being like something that I'm afraid of as a pastor, by the way, I love the fact that my that the members uh, are eager to listen to everything that I say and they'll search the Scriptures to say, well, pastor, you said that. I've never heard that quite in that way before. What Bible passages did you cite? I mean, what joy. Because what am I doing as a pastor when I'm saying, yes, go and check me. I'm driving them deeper into the saving word. It could only benefit them and strengthen the congregation, you know? And so a pastor should, this is a word for pastors, not just for congregations. Don't feel threatened. Don't be afraid, you know? When, when your folks come and want to ask questions about what you've been preaching or teaching, that is a wonderful thing that they're doing. And especially if they say, show me in the Bible where that is true, take that opportunity and rejoice in that opportunity because what they're saying is basically show me where my Savior is found. And instead of pointing them to a bush outside or to money or to some other church on the other side of town, you're pointing them into the Holy Word. That is where Jesus is found. I mean, would that every congregation test their pastor as, as the Bereans did St. Paul? You know, the church can only be better. The church can only be stronger for that. Yeah, I mean, and this is a wonderful thing. And I, I'm sure you could you would say the same. I think you just did say the same, Pastor Flamey, that when when your member comes to you with that question, what a what a joyful moment that is. When you you get to sit down and and look at the scriptures together with a fellow Christian, one who's been entrusted to your care. I mean, this is a that's such a joyful thing for a pastor. So go to your pastor, ask him those questions. Let him lead you into the scriptures, test what he says based on those scriptures. It's it's such a wonderful thing, both for the the pastor and the parishioner to to be that same Berean, that that noble Berean. What a what a joyful thing. Pastor Flamey, we got about four minutes here. And and I think to to close, I want to come back to something that I think you you brought up earlier. The relationship between Paul's preaching and the Old Testament, which I think will help us tie some of these things together. We talked about it with his preaching in the the Thessalonian synagogue. We've been talking about this going into the scriptures with the Bereans. Help us to to tie all those things together with what Paul's preaching, how that relates to the Old Testament, how what Christ has done fulfills the Old Testament. Help us to to bring things home this morning. Absolutely. Um, if you have your Lutheran uh, study Bibles at home, uh, they have this quote in there from Luther. It's actually, Luther didn't write a, a commentary on Acts or anything like that. Instead, this is in his volume that uh, from St. Paul's, or I'm sorry, St. Peter's first epistle. So I think that's volume 30. Look at around page 19 and at the beginning of page 20. And if you do, you'll find a beautiful section where Luther describes exactly what's, what, what uh, you're talking about, Tim. That, and that is that the Old Testament is not irrelevant. The Old Testament isn't full of old stories for an older religion. Instead, the Old Testament, Luther says plainly there, is gospel. 
And he's, that's right, gospel. I mean, sometimes we have this simplistic understanding of the Old Testament. That's just all law. It's all obedience theology. And the only way the Jews were going to be saved was by their works. No, that's not true. Uh, Salvation has come from the very beginning to Adam and Eve all the way until now by faith alone. And in the Old Testament, instead of saying like the preaching of of, uh, Moses as Savior, Moses points away from himself. Even through, even in the times when he delivers the law to the people, he points away from himself and away from the uh, from the law, which is not sufficient in itself to give salvation. And he points forward to the prophet who is going to be greater than him, who's going to bring to fulfillment what has begun in the drawing the people out of the idolatry of Egypt, when he finally gives them the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And so when you read the Old Testament, don't think to yourself, this doesn't apply to me. I should really be spending all my time in the New Testament. Absolutely not. Instead, see how often St. Paul in his epistles uh, cites the Old Testament. I mean, use your Bible reference and just watch how the New Testament preaches the Old. And, And the way it preaches the Old is to say that in the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets were always pointing away from themselves and to one who is greater, one who is yet to come. Just like St. John the Baptist, remember, came not preaching himself and and saying, here I am, uh, the prophet. You've been waiting 400 years, and now a prophet is here among you. Instead, he says, I have come to prepare you for the one that all of my brother prophets before me have been anticipating and waiting for. Uh, See, he is among you, and, and, and he is the Lamb of God. He is going to be your sacrifice, your substitute, your redeemer. You know, the entirety of the Holy Scriptures preaches Christ. Jesus himself says this in uh, uh, John. Uh, I, where, uh, let me let me use my memory for a second. <laughs> so in John chapter five, right? Verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them they, 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 uh, they give eternal life, but it is they that bear witness to me. Yes. Do the scriptures give eternal life? Yes. But that eternal life is found in the coming Messiah. So also he says in John chapter 5, 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. Uh, So take some time. Read through the Psalms. Use the Psalms as your prayer book and and consider in the Psalms uh, the places where it speaks about Jesus. Case in point, Psalm 23, that's Old Testament. And yet Psalm 23 is not about David, uh, but it's about Jesus. Same thing about Psalm 22. There David is not speaking of himself, but he has been granted a vision from the Holy Spirit as to how his, his son and his Lord will redeem the whole world through his sufferings and his death. Uh, so all, So when you read your New Testament and you see these references, trace them back to the prophets. And learn to understand the prophets as Jesus did and as how he preached himself from the prophets. And how, uh, and, and how St. Paul or St. Peter and the rest of the apostles preached Christ convincingly from the prophets from of old. Pastor Brian Flamy is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, helping us today with Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 15. Pastor Flamy, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 17, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.